at the the logic of this course follows, and in, in years to come, I might change the logic of the course. I might change it more in terms of epochs, like eras. Um, it'll be roughly similar to how it is now, but the main way that I'm um, s- slicing up salvation history is by uh, by important figure, okay, mediator figure. So we had Adam, we had Noah, we had Abraham, then we had Moses, and now we're on David. And David, in a certain sense, he's kind of the last Old Testament figure that we're we're going to be using as a step towards uh, the the final stage of the New Testament. There'll be one more stage, though, and that is basically the prophets. And we'll look at prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel about explicit prophecies about the Messiah and about the New Testament, the New Covenant. Uh, So that'll be kind of like the next phase after David. And we'll spend maybe two or maybe three sessions on David. Um, I think we'll probably look at the Psalms next week, which would be neat to do, to look at the Psalter. And at first, the, the, the Psalter, 150 Psalms, it looks a little chaotic. You don't really see necessarily, it's not extremely obvious, the connection between the Psalms. But um, scholars over the years, uh, between modern scholars and the tradition, uh, once you draw upon the, the insights and the wisdom of that, you, you begin to see a kind of a, a really incredible logic in the Psalms, and it's very messianic. It's very much about the Messiah, and David is a figure of the Messiah. So we have, we have a, an important transition coming into David. We have an important transition here because David, of all the mediating figures, is the closest to the Messiah in, in terms of likeness. You know, you have Adam who is just some uh, guy without any clothes in a garden. You know? Which, well, just right there, there is a likeness to Jesus, right? Jesus was was crucified, you know, naked or semi-naked, and there was a relationship with the garden. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and all that stuff. But you get my point. For the most part, uh, Adam, you know, is this is this really, really ancient, almost, almost legendary kind of figure. Uh, first man in the Garden of Eden, um, created uh, in a... In a um, in innocence, and then you have Noah, and you know uh, this this guy who builds an ark, and he's got these children, and then you have Abraham, this kind of wandering nomadic uh, shepherd figure, and so you see these guys are not super looking like the Messiah. Then you've got Moses, you know, who's a great prophet, uh, but then you have David who really is, is in the likeness of a, this messianic figure because he's a king. That's the main thing. He's a king. And the Messiah means, uh, in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. And the Greek translation of Mashiach is Christos. And Christos is you know where we get our English word Christ. And it means the anointed one. And it's a specific reference to the Messiah. So when you read the Old Testament, the, explicit, the actual word Mashiach or Messiah is used, oh, I don't know, I'm going to guess maybe maybe 20 times, something like that, to designate a king uh, and even kind of a future king as well. In certain passages, it's clear that it designates this future promised kind of grand final king who's going to come. And then in the Old Testament, if you can remember, what uh, remember a few hundred years before the birth of our Lord, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Does everybody remember what the what the name of that old te- the Greek Old Testament is? You guys remember? I, I talk about it all the time, don't I? Yeah, the Septuagint. John's John's got it, got it there. 
So it's called the Septuagint after the number 70. So sometimes you see it abbreviated as LXX, which is the uh, Roman numerals for se- uh, for 70. The Roman numeral for 70. And uh, that's t- because there was reputedly 70 Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into the Greek. And that Greek Old Testament plays a really important role uh, for us Christians because it's almost a bridge between the Old Testament as written in Hebrew and the New Testament as written in Greek. And the authors of the New Testament, they cite the Greek Old Testament. They quote the Greek Old Testament. Their thought comes a lot out of the Greek Old Testament. And so in the Greek Old Testament, this word Mashiach is translated Christos a lot. How do you and, spell that? Mashiach. Uh, Mashiach you, in English, you'd spell it probably a number of different ways, however you want to transliterate the Hebrew, but I mean, I've seen M-E-S-H-I-A-C-H. That's what I've seen. M-E-S-H-I-A-C-H. That's what I've seen. There's probably other ways to spell it. It just depends on how you you bring Hebrew into English. Um, Charlie. So... uh, the Psalter, when I say the Psalter, I mean the, the book of Psalms, the one through 150 Psalms, um, in the Greek Bible, uses the word Christos, or Christ, all over the place. So if we were ancient Christians, and we spoke Greek, and we read the Greek Old Testament, we'd read the Psalms, and we'd, say the, we'd see the word Christ showing up all the times in the Old Testament. And so then, as Christians, we believe that this particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, is exactly what the Psalms are talking about. But the, the, whole re- the reference to the Messiah or to the, the Christ is all throughout the, the Psalms. So next session, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll look at the Psalms and we'll try to see how they are very messianic and how they point to Christ. So um, David, again, an important transitional figure because uh, the Messiah who would come uh, would be really, really close to him. Now, of course, um, Jesus... <clears throat> he came and he wasn't a, an overtly political Messiah. Uh, and so in the light of the coming of Jesus, our concept of the Messiah needs to be kind of stretched out a little bit and spiritualized a little bit more than maybe what the Jews in his time were expecting. Uh, but for the most part, you know, he, he is a king figure. He is a human, uh, he is a human per, um, being who is going to... Uh, be have have a monarchical authority over the entire world, and in his person is going to be expressed and summed up the kingdom of God, and so it's very kingly, it's very it's messianic, and uh, in the book of Revelation, in the, in the final book of the Bible, when Jesus is portrayed as coming in his second coming, he is like a king. He's got crowns on his head. He's riding on a horse, you know, and so oftentimes the first coming and the second coming are contrasted over against each other because in the first coming, Jesus comes without any crowns on his head, but he comes into Jerusalem as kind of like the rightful king of Jerusalem and people are greeting him as the Messiah and they have the palms and this is, you know, we're coming up on Palm Sunday. This is what we celebrate with Palm Sunday. And, but he comes on, a, on a, a donkey, which is a symbol of peace because a donkey is not really, really useful in war. So people didn't really ride donkeys into war. Um, but uh, so a donkey is a symbol of peace, and here he comes in as a symbol of peace. 
But then when he comes the second time, he's going to be on a horse, you know, in the imagery at least, not literally, but in the imagery of the apocalypse, he comes riding a horse with crowns. And so now he's a figure of war because he comes as the judge of the living and the dead uh, in his second coming. So we're going to, you know, go through David. We're going to go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and show the prophecies in those three prophets uh, that are very explicit about the Messiah and about the new covenant. And then we might read a little bit out of the New Testament. I don't know, you know, because what I really wanted to do in this course, one of the things I wanted to accomplish, is to let people know that the Old Testament is really important, and that it, you know, if you really got the Old Testament, you got the New Testament. It's, you know, you got it in the in the bag. And um, and then I we might talk a little bit about uh, you've heard me use this phrase, the eschaton, all the time, which means that final final uh, goal point towards which all history is headed. And Jesus really is the pers- the eschaton in a per- in summed up in a person. Jesus really is the eschaton. But we could talk about the eschaton also as just simply the end of the world. And so we we very well might talk about that, and we might talk about certain historical events that are prophesied to precede the end of the world. Uh, we might get into that a little bit. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you know, in my in my reflections over the years. I have seen in American uh, kind of low church Protestant Christianity a great surge of popularity in eschatology and, and speculations about the end of the world. And right now, for years now, there's been this series of novels that's been produced it's called the Left Behind series. And it's wildly, wildly successful. I mean, I don't know how many thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this book have been sold. Uh, and so our you know, more conservative, low church Protestant brothers and sisters, they're really into this. I mean, they're really, really into it. And unfortunately, there's kind of mis, they have some misconceptions and some fantasy stuff going on, and there's some kind of weirdness about it. So there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, things that are out of balance there. But I find it interesting that there's this such a thirst to, to think about the second coming of Christ and the different historical events that are, um, Reputed to to take place before that takes place before that happens. Now, what's unknown to a lot of Catholics is when we talk about eschatology, we talk about what's called the four last things, and we focus mostly on the individual eschatology, the the end of the individual believer, and not the end of the world. So we focus on death, uh, judgment, uh, hell, and heaven as the the four last things last relative to the individual soul. And that's a traditional a Lenten um, meditation is the four last things. But we do have in our tradition an incredibly rich eschatological tradition that has huge amounts of speculation about historical events that are going to precede the second coming of Christ. It's just not very well known, but it's there. We have a massive, absolutely massive eschatological tradition and uh, so maybe we can get into that a little bit, uh, possibly. I don't know if we're out of time. The other thing I thought would be possibly interesting to kind of end off the year with is talking about some of those difficult questions that I kind of skipped over real quick when we were talking about Adam. So thing, questions about evolution, how do we understand the book of Genesis, how literally do we take it, um, the age of the earth, the age of the human race, these sorts of scientific questions. So kind of like apologetic questions, the relationship between science and faith and reason and faith. Uh, we might want to address those if we've got time. Um, 
You know, I think that would be interesting and helpful because I think another thing, you know, what I'm trying to do is get us to appreciate and love the Bible. And people get turned off from the Bible for a number of reasons. The Old Testament is really big, really complicated, and they don't see how it's relevant to the to Christianity. I mean, this is how a lot of Christians feel. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. They're not going to even try to read it because it's just too complicated and too big. So I wanted to sort of, you know, work on that one with all of us. And then the second reason why people are really alienated from the Bible is they think, well, I don't know. Do you really believe seven days? The world was created in seven days, and doesn't it? It's all is that all legendary? It's all is it a myth? And so all of those legitimate questions and concerns. Those are the things that alienate people from the Bible, and I don't want that to take place. I want us to be able to understand and appreciate it. So I thought that might be important to address too. And it depends on you know what you guys want to do and what your response is. So, what do you guys think? Like prima facie, we're all right off the bat. How does that sound? It sounds great. Does that sound interesting? Yes. Okay. You know. Uh, good. Well, tonight. Uh, following now, I know Gary uh, Lalonde told me he he bought John uh, Bergsma's book and he read it. Read you read you read it? Yes. And so here's a quote from John Bergsma's book. I thought it was pretty pretty funny. He's when when this author describes the scriptural transition from Moses to David, basically what he he points out a certain fact. He says the the word Moses, the name Moses appears 800 times in the Old Testament. Okay, that's a lot, right? The vast bulk of these appearances are found in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. So just five books, the five, one of the five more earlier books of the Bible. So Moses takes up uh, an important chunk of the earliest part of the Bible. Um, but then the name David shows up over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And these appearances can be found in Ruth, the major historical books, meaning 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, um, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, the Psalter, meaning the Psalms, right? The 150 Psalms, the major prophets, meaning uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then some of the minor prophets. So David shows up in a much broader expanse of the Old Testament books, and his name shows up more times. Um, and of course, the Psalms themselves are the most in the Christian era. When you, if you read the New Testament. The Old Testament books that are quoted the most are the Psalms by far. The Psalms are quoted like so many more times than any part of the Old Testament. And the Psalms are all woven into our liturgy. It's like you could just randomly open up one of our liturgical books and do this and your finger would probably land on a quotation of a Psalm. So Psalms are everywhere throughout the Christian tradition. And, um, so, and the Jews as well. All the Jewish prayers. If you if you're an observant Jew and you you follow all of their daily prayers, it's all the Psalms. And then uh, for for religious and for priests within the Catholic tradition who are bound and obliged to pray the daily prayers throughout the day, it's all Psalms. You know. So it's just the point is is that the Psalms are really important, and David is the key figure in the Psalms. So David's a really important figure in the Old Testament. So Bergsma writes, this is a quote, Genesis through Joshua is the Moses channel, but from Ruth to the end of the Old Testament, it switches to the David channel. All David, all the time. So, uh, and that it is kind of happens like that. So you're going like, okay, so here's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, here's the channel, and then suddenly, click, you know, you it's now it's on David, starting with Samuel, and then it's just... Samuel, um, David, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He's really a, a central figure. 
And uh, the historical books record the history of the kingdom of David. The Psalms were written or inspired by David. The wisdom books flow from Solomon, uh, David's son. So when I say the wisdom books, we're talking Proverbs and um, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus and Ben Sira. <clears throat> These are inspired largely in part by uh, the figure of Solomon, who's David's son. And then finally, the prophets, all the Old Testament prophets, meaning the Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, so forth and so on, they promise David's kingdom. Uh, there's a David's kingdom will come. So David marks a new era. And another point that Bergsma made, I thought that was just kind of interesting, was that uh, David is the eighth son of his father. His father Jesse had had eight sons, and David was the eighth. What uh, what other how what other you know place does how does the eight ring a bell in our mind? Okay, what what else happened on the eighth day? What do you what do you think of when you think of the seventh day? The blessed Mary. Yeah, sure. On the seventh day, the Sabbath. It's the rest, right? Okay, so that's Saturday, right? Now, what's the eighth day? The eighth day is the day after Saturday, right? What day is that? <laughs> and what happened on Sunday? Christ Christ rose from the dead. Okay, so this is our Easter faith is all rooted in Sunday, our Sunday faith. It's the eighth day. So all the ancient commentators would talk about Sunday as the eighth day. Um, and it's also thought uh, something along the lines of... Um, well, it's the first day of the week, and you know, in a certain sense, the, you, we can tie creation to the first day of the week because you know, if you break up the creation week in the beginning, of Genesis chapter one, so creation began on day one, okay, so to speak. However, you understand those seven days. Um, so again, the ancient commentators, what they would do is they would say, okay, so you have the eighth day, and the eighth day is significant because. Um, it is the resurrection of Christ, and it's also the first day of creation. So the world was created on the eighth day. This is kind. Of, this is the mindset. This is what the ancient commentators would say. So there's the first creation, then there's the second creation. In Christ, we are a new creation. So there's a regeneration that takes place on the eighth day. Is the resurrection of of Jesus. So here's the next little section on this ter- handout I gave us. This uh, the ways that David was important for the nation of Israel. Well, he was important politically. He was important liturgically and then eschatologically. Okay, now that, that big word again shows up, eschatology. So how was David important politically? Let's do a little just review of history here. And I don't know how much background you guys already have in this, but basically I wish you see, I wish I had a map and a timeline and all this kind of stuff. I don't have as the kind of materials I'd like. But um, you know, if you can just kind of imagine in your mind and, and, and grasp this conceptually, what you have is we were, we left off at Moses. Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. That was around the year 1200, okay, roughly speaking. And I and I explained to you before. There's kind of two main dates. They think possibly some scholars would think that the Exodus took place around 1400 BC. Others think it took place maybe around 1200 or 1230 BC, something like 1250 BC. I kind of lean more towards the 1250 date myself. So just for the sake of argument, let's say you know mid-13th century uh, B.C., the Exodus takes place. Now, how many years did the children of Israel 
take to get actually go to the Holy Land? How many years did they wander about? 40. They, they took 40 years, okay? And it really was a kind of a punishment, all right? It was a result of their disobedience because they could have gone to the Promised Land directly from Egypt and it wouldn't have been that long. It probably would have taken them a few months just to get there and it would have been fine. They didn't need to go 40 years. But there's two, the two main explanations, at least that I can remember, that the Bible gives is, first of all, the disobedience. So God actually, what He wanted to do and, and intentionally was take the children of Israel and make them wander for 40 years so that the generation that was disobedient to Him was dead, just died of natural causes, was gone. And so they, had, they were basically um, prohibited from entering into the Promised Land. I mean, they were saved from Egypt, but they were not allowed to go into the Promised Land. That was part of the reason. The other reason that the Bible gives for the explanation is that um, the uh, the generation there's kind of like two generations. There's a young generation, like a babies, the babies, you know, those those kids who were on their on their on their you know uh, parents' laps when they were being brought out of Egypt, and then you have the adults. The adults um, fought. And knew battle, a new war, but the younger generation didn't know battle and didn't know war, and so God wanted to time it so that the people that were that the younger generation would actually learn how to fight. It's very interesting. And um, the other the other thing that ties into this is God says, "I'm going to bring you into the Holy Land, and I'm actually going to uh, we're not you're not going to be able to totally wipe out the inhabitants, the Canaanites in the Holy Land overnight. I'm going to." Make it so that even after you come into the Holy Land, there's always going to be groups of Canaanites and Philistines and whatnot that you're going to have to fight. And uh, and I actually want you to learn how to fight. I want you to learn war. It's very interesting. Now, the traditional spiritual interpretation of that is is there's a direct parallel to baptism. So uh, what's always said traditionally about baptism is this. Adam and Eve, they were free from what's called concupiscence. Concupiscence is this inner tendency that we have to commit a sin. Adam and Eve were created in a state that they were, they were free from concupiscence. After they sinned, after they fell from God's grace, there were a number of consequences. One of which was that they experienced and were subject to this thing we call concupiscence. Okay? So they had this inner tendency now to sin. There was a kind of a disbalance or disequilibrium that, that was introduced into their um, psychology, into their soul, into their person, into the inner depths of their person, such that their passions would oftentimes get, get the best of their reason. And there was a kind of a conflict between what they knew what they wanted to do, or I'm sorry, what they knew what was right to do versus what they, what they kind of wanted to do. Okay? So their desire and their, their conscience were at odds with each other. Afterwards, because of this thing called concupiscence, and so uh, <clears throat> now what, in baptism, when we're baptized, original sin is taken away from us, and we're given grace, and we're restored to that state of friendship that Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. And so we have grace, but we still have concupiscence. And so what all the ancient commentators say is it's just like the Holy Land. So. They, they come into the promised land, they're in the promised land, but the enemies are still there. So also with us, we're in the promised land in a certain sense, we're in God's grace, but the enemies are still there. And God wants us to learn how to fight that inner enemy that's called concupiscence. He wants us to learn war. And so an essential part of the Christian life is 
uh, is warfare and conflict with our inner passions. And so the three traditional enemies of the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world is the sum total of human beings that are you know, in the world who are alienated from God and who think in a very worldly way. And they like to design advertisements that appeal to your flesh. And they, they, there's just very worldly maxims and worldly ways of thinking. It's on television. It's, it's pushed on us through our educational systems. And unfortunately, our government has bought into this, into this worldly way of thinking, a non-Christian way of thinking, very largely in many, in many aspects. Not in every way. You know, not in every, in every sense, you know, but in a lot of ways, okay? Um, so you've got the world and you've got the flesh. That's the enemy within. And then you've got the devil. The devil's outside of us. But uh, there's temptation. So he, he basically, you know, demons will, will attempt us by putting suggestions to us to kind of stir up our concupiscence. That's how it works. So there's an external enemy of the, of the demons and then there's the internal enemy of the flesh. And none of these things are magically taken away when you're baptized. You know, if you're baptized, it's not like, woohoo, you know, I don't have to worry about anything anymore. I mean, we know that that's not true at all. Okay, and so really, baptism is the beginning of warfare. It's the beginning of the Christian struggle, and uh, and you have to fight bravely. And so, salvation that we, which hopefully we attain salvation by the end of our life when we die and we go to heaven, that's when we're really saved for good. And then the warfare is over. The battle's over at that point. Uh, at least the battle that we experience now in our in our flesh. Um, but. Christianity, and I've preached this, I say this a lot, Christianity and salvation, it's a gift, but it's also a prize. We've got to win it. And you don't, you know, you don't win something unless you compete for it and you struggle and you, you strive. So, you know, any preacher that goes and promises you that everything's all happy, lucky, happy go lucky from here on out now that you're a Christian, it's not, he's not telling you the truth. He's not doing you any favors. You gotta get ready because it's not easy. The Christian life is not easy. So, but anyways, there's a nice analogy there between the fact that God intentionally left these enemies in the, in the Holy Land so that the children of Israel would learn war versus our experience as Christians. And that's one way we can understand some of these difficult passages in the, in the Old Testament because it's very violent. That's another thing that alienates people from the Old Testament. There's tons of violence. You know, lots, lots and lots of violence. Um, but the way that you can understand it is that all these things took place in history as a foreshadowing of the spiritual life that would, would come to be uh, you know, in its most concentrated form in, in the Christian era. Charlie? You know, Father, maybe that's why um, God wanted the young... Um, to no war. Yeah. Because they came out of 400 years of slavery. Yeah. And then when they came out into the desert, they were taken care of and were fed by God. Sure. And was given the water. Right. They were kind of babied in a certain sense. And there's sense. a whole war going to go on to this day. And so that younger generation yeah. would have to be ready for it. Trained for it. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the explanations the Bible gives. As to the forty years, you know, because it was not necessary for them to tra- wander around forty years in the desert; they could have gone straight into the Holy Land. So uh, they get into the Holy Land maybe around the year twelve hundred or so. Now, interestingly enough, from the historical point of view, it's at this point that we have extra biblical documentation of some of this stuff. Okay, so there are Egyptian records, archaeological records, that start to mention around this time uh, Israelites and Hebrews and all this kind of stuff in the Holy Land. Um, so these are some of the earliest archaeological records. Before these records, 
we take the Bible, first of all, the Bible can stand on its own as a, as a relatively, uh, I mean, it's some kind of source of history, right? From a, from a historical point of view, it's some kind of horse, source of history. You can get some kind of history from it. You might not, you might not, uh, you might, from a historical point of view, be skeptical about some of the things in the early chapters of Genesis. But, you know, by the time Exodus comes around, it's pretty reasonable to assume you can get some kind of historical uh, information out of it. And uh, But in any event, we have these extra-biblical things that kind of confirm the existence of ancient Israelites. And uh, there are these different Egyptian skirmishes and battles that take place on the border between the Canaanite land and the and and the way that the Egyptians describe the Israelites is they describe them as these kind of wandering nomadic people called Israelites or Hebrews or something, you know. Um, so at that point now, this is about 1200 BC. Basically, what happens is there's not a king yet. There's no king in Israel. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Joshua is the main leader. He brings them into the Holy Land, and then after Joshua dies. You have these individual uh, warrior ki- warrior like chieftains, basically. Like it's almost like an, uh, in the Native Americans with their tribes, they'd have a chief, you know. And the chi- and this kind of chief really he wasn't a king because the main thing about a king, properly speaking, is he's got his own standing army. He's got a professional army that's always at his side, and he can use that army to oppress the people when he wants to. Okay, that's the main thing about a king. Whereas uh, with you know the the way that Israel was structured is similar to the Native Americans is you have tribes and all the adult men fought so everybody fought it wasn't like there was a specialized army everybody fought and there was one guy who was their chief leader and he was a warrior and he was chief precisely because he was one of the better warriors okay so that's how the Israelites were ruled for about 200 years and that's the period they call the judges Okay, so you've got these figures called the judges, and they were basically these warrior chieftains, and they led Israel up until about the year 1000. And at that point, that's when the king started. The first king was Saul. Saul was kind of almost like a mistake in God's plan. I mean, he, it was strange. It was a strange thing. I mean, he was he was called to be king, but then he he uh, he made some 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 bad sins. And God rejected him completely. And when God rejected him, he rejected his family. And that was, so it's more, it's not just the case that he rejected Saul. It's that Saul's entire dynasty was, was set aside. And so there's going to be a new dynasty. Oh, the other thing about the ancient chieftain warriors is not, sometimes their sons were the next leader, but not necessarily. But a king, properly speaking, has got a standing army, and it's also, there's some right of succession that takes place. So uh, it's usually his son, maybe his oldest son, that will be the next in line for the throne. So Saul and his sons, they were rejected from ruling, and then David comes about. Now David at first is a trusted, um, he's like basically Saul's right-hand man. He's very trusted by Saul. But eventually Saul starts getting, guess what? Jealous, 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 okay. Now, who else suffered from jealousy that we know about? Really important person who suffered at the hands of other people because they were jealous. No, more, more. Yeah, I'm, this is real obvious. It's always this person. Satan. Well, I mean, Satan was jealous himself, right, of Adam and Eve. But who was the who got the brunt of jealousy? Jesus. Jesus, right? Okay. 
Just when in doubt, just say Jesus, and you're probably right if I ask you. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I continually try to show how all these Old Testament figures are, are foreshadowings and types of Christ. So here's David, who's a shepherd boy, okay, and uh, he grows up and he, he knows how to use a sling, right? You know, so he kills these wild animals that come after the sheep. Again, another kind of type of Christ. Christ is the good shepherd, and he protects us from the wild animals, the Satan, essentially, okay? And um, so there's King David. Now, uh, eventually, he he gets famous because he kills someone, another warrior from an enemy tribe. What's what's Goliath, uh, Goliath right? So you got Goliath of Gath, this really tall guy. He's this warrior champion of the Philistines, and David kills him with a sling and the, the stone right in the head, you know. And uh, all the all the ancient Catholic theologians have all of these mystical interpretations of these, the stones that David used, why they were smooth, they were taken out of this different. Uh, a little riverbed and, and why they were used as a sling and all this kind of stuff. And it's prophetic of Christ and all these very interesting interpretations of David's sling and the stones and his defeat of Goliath. So, you know, we have Jesus who, who in the Gospel says, when, uh, when, when there's a strong man, um, you know, who's basically dominating a house, first you got to go in and you bind up the strong man and you take his armor and then you can plunder his house. And so that's Jesus versus the devil. And so there's this nice type of here's David versus, uh, I'm sorry, here's Christ versus Satan. David versus Goliath, Christ versus Satan. So, and we have giants, right, in our life. We have these great enemies that come after, over us or after us, you know, different tragedies and hardships and labors and uh, uh, temptations that come against us. And these are our giants, and we've got to overcome them. And the moral of the story is that it's by faith. It's not by strength, right? Because David was a lot smaller than Goliath. So it's by faith and it's by trusting in God's help that the small and the seemingly weak are able to overcome uh, that, that which is strong by worldly standards, by fleshly standards. So David becomes uh, famous because he defeats Goliath. He becomes a famous warrior. Um, uh, but eventually what starts happening is that at one point the ladies come in back after a battle and the ladies are singing songs about David and they're saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And then Saul starts going, I don't like that, you know. And uh, he, get, he starts getting jealous and then David eventually uh, marries one of Saul's uh, daughters and uh, Saul, though, at some point really just turns on David and David actually has to escape. He runs away. And so then all of these guys come out and they follow David and they become his, his band of, you know, his, his uh, allies, his band of warriors. But they're all fleeing from Saul and they're hiding in the wilderness and they're hiding in caves and Saul's trying to hunt them down and trying to kill them. And so a lot of the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, they're to be understood in the context of this kind of conflict. And so here is David, who is writing in the Psalms, or at least you know the Psalms are being written in his name, and, and he's saying things like, my persecutors are coming against me, they're coming against me, my enemies are too much for me, all this kind of stuff, I'm call, I call to the Lord for help. And so David is this persecuted figure, and he is suffering. And again, so it's prophetic of Christ, because Christ is going to come as a king, as a strong, powerful, mighty king, but he's going to be a suffering Messiah, as well as a triumphant Messiah, as well, and that it harkens back to King David, who himself had to undergo suffering and was persecuted, and uh, 
was not recognized. And the other interesting thing is that David was anointed king. So was Saul, right? Saul was anointed king, right. But then he was rejected. So then God... And this all takes place through the prophet Samuel. So Samuel, all throughout this, is the mouthpiece for God. And so Samuel anoints Saul, and he says, God's made you king. Then Saul goes through his... He, you know, he becomes alienated from God through his sins. And then Saul... I'm sorry, Samuel says to Saul, God's rejected you, and he's chosen your comrade to be king in your place. And Samuel goes and actually anoints David as king. And that's when he starts getting persecuted. That's very interesting. So David, in a certain sense, is already king in reality, but no one knows it. No one recognizes it. And so, But then he eventually comes, and then everybody recognizes him, and he becomes king of all Israel. So it's really it's parallel again to, to Christ to our Lord Jesus, who is anointed in a certain respects in the, in the womb of the Blessed Mother, or maybe you can say, you know, there was a kind of a symbolic anointing that took place at his baptism. The River Jordan, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon him, and, uh, and the voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son, basically saying, this is the Messiah. Okay, And so Jesus really is the Messiah, but he's not recognized as such. All right? But then, and especially by his brothers, he's not recognized, meaning the Jewish people. But then when Jesus comes back in the second coming, he comes back as this kind of triumphant king figure and he's finally recognized by the, nation, by the Jewish nation, by, by Israel according to the flesh. So anyways, again, analogy with Christ, or if you want you to draw it forth from another analogy, maybe he was recognized, his kingship, his messiahhood, was recognized at his resurrection. You know, by us at least, by us Christians who have been his disciples for 2,000 years now. Now, David uh, is promised, he's a very different figure from Saul. So this is around the year 1,000. Um, and Saul was rejected from being king, but David is told multiple times, I will never, by God, I will never reject you. Your dynasty will, sit on, will, will rule over Israel, my people of God, forever. Okay, and so the main prophecy of that, the most important, one of the most important, probably top five most important messianic prophecies in the Bible, is in Second Samuel chapter seven. So if we can turn there, It's uh, it's Second Samuel, so the second book, you know, and then chapter seven. Yep, chapter seven. Okay, so who's brave? Who wants to read in public? Take the great risk. Okay, Charlie, go ahead. All right, just start. Yeah, sure. Just just read. I'll tell you when to stop. David's concerned for the ark. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies on every side, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan answered the king, Go do whatever you have in mind. Keep going. For the Lord is with you. Okay, so we'll stop. Just do a little pause here. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay. 
Okay. So um, what's interesting is so David is now recognized as king. He's king over all Israel, both the north and, and the south. Okay, Judah is this one distinct tribe. And uh, then you have the other tribes. And, and David is king of them all. All right. And they, they, the tribes themselves recognized him, came to him, wanted him to be their king. So he builds a, so then he goes to Jerusalem and he makes Jerusalem the center of the nation of Israel. Another huge important thing that David did is he made Jerusalem the center of everything. He builds his palace and he's living in a great palace. But where's the ark now? What, where do we leave off the ark? What was the state of the religious equipment, so to speak, of the Israelites? It was in a tent, in a, in a basically. It was in the tabernacle. Okay, And so David is like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Here I am. I've got this nice palace and God's living in a tent. That's not right. You know, so... So David wants to build a temple. Okay, that's what he's got in his mind. He wants to build a temple. And Nathan, the prophet, says, the Lord's with you, go for it. Okay, but then there's a little bit of a change of plans here. That was Nathan just making a judgment from his common sense. And it wasn't a, you know, God didn't tell Nathan to say that, but Nathan thought that would be a reasonable thing to do is, you know, go for it. Um, So uh, why don't we begin in uh, verse 4 here. Charlie, you can continue. But that night the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Should you build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day on which I led the Israelites out of Egypt to the present, but I have been going about in a tent under cloth. In all my wanderings everywhere among the Israelites, did I ever utter a word to anyone of the judges whom I charged to tend my people Israel to ask, what have you not, why, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord's promises. Now then, speak thus to my servant David. The Lord of the hosts has this to say. It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be commander of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. And I will make you famous like the great ones of the earth. I will fix a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their place without further disturbance. Neither shall the wicked continue to afflict them as they did of old, since the time I first appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give rest from all your enemies. The Lord also reveals to you that he will establish a house for you. And when your time comes... And you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your ear after you, sprung from your loins, and I will make him kingdom from his kingdom firm. It is he who shall build a house for my name, and I will make his royal throne firm forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And if he does wrong, I will correct him with the rod of men and with human chastisements. But I will not withdraw my favor from him as I would, with, as I withdrew it from your predecessor Saul, whom I removed from my presence. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall stand firm forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. Okay. Now that's a lot right there. Again, you know how we come across these passages in the Bible that seem to sum up all of salvation history like in a nutshell? This would be one of them. All right? 
That's a lot right there. Now, there's some very interesting kind of aspects to this that I'll draw your attention to. So David's thinking about building this temple. And the promise to him is, says, David, you're not going to be the one that's going to build it. It's going to be your son. Now, it's really important to know that you got this translation. Why I'm a really big fan of the very literal translations is because it's easier to see the points that are, and the connections that are being made. So it's really seed that should be translated. It says, no, it's in verse, um, uh, it's going to be in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you. I will raise up your seed. And so we talked, I mean, how much, how often have we seen that word seed in all the different things that we were studying in the past uh, sessions together? And so we have that promised seed, remember, going all the way back to the Proto-Evangelium, going back to the Garden of Eden, where God says to, He says to the devil, I will place enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, will will strike at your head and you will strike at his heel. And so you've got the seed of the woman, this prophesied seed that's going to come. And then we've got Abraham. And it's in Abraham's seed that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then finally we've got David's seed. So all of those promises, the broadest promise that we find in the Garden of Eden, it kind of gets narrower with Abraham. And then it gets even narrower with David. And it's now it's David's seed that's going to uh, be the recipients, and it's going to be the thing that fulfills all of these promises that have gone beforehand. Now, on the surface, okay, prima facie, on the surface, this seems like it could be talking about Solomon, all right, and especially because it says if he commits iniquity, I'm going to, you know, slap him around and spank him, but I won't, I won't take my fidelity and my faithfulness away from him. And so we know Solomon was a very great sinner, um, and uh, and he was there was chastisements that that came about uh, because of the sins. One, the, his main sin was um, is idolatry. I mean, really, he he welcomed idolatry back into Israel and basically caused Israel to fall back into idolatry. Remember, what was the primal sin with under Moses in the Mount Sinai? It was idolatry. It was that golden calf. Okay. So what happens is Solomon, and the thing is that Solomon is, you know, he's a he's a he's a ladies' man, okay, and um, polygamy was allowed, was kind of permitted in the Old Testament dispensation in certain circumstances for certain figures. So polygamy, in a certain sense, was not really it wasn't really what was it wasn't the worst thing that Solomon did, but what was really bad about it is that he really took polygamy and he he kind of like he gave it a new name. I mean, it was really just. He saw a beautiful woman, and suddenly she was she's mine. Okay, and if, you know uh, she an unmarried woman. Of course, there was never adultery that would take place. But and the thing is, though, it was these were foreign women who worshipped other gods, and so to keep all of these ladies happy, he would then build temples for them all in Israel. Okay, and so. Suddenly all idolatry comes into Israel, into Jerusalem, right in the temple of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, right in the city of Jerusalem. Right across from Solomon's own palace, there is this big temple for to an idol. Keep his wives happy. And then eventually, you know, it's kind of like the, the guy that keeps his Catholic wife happy by going to church with her. So, so Solomon does the same thing with, with his wife. So he starts going to church 
with his wife, basically, with his wives. And so he's going into all these idolatrous temples. He's offering up sacrifices to all these different gods. And so there's a great punishment that comes down upon Israel. And God says, basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to split Israel in half. Because of what you've done, I'm going to divide it in half. And so after Solomon dies from his son, uh, Rephidim, uh, I can't remember his name, but it starts with an R. From his, from Solomon's son onwards, there's two um, divisions. So you got the northern uh, kingdom of Israel; it's called Israel, and then you got the southern kingdom of Judah; it's called Judah. And so they're not united anymore. So Israel's split. And then guess what happens? The northern kingdom, because they don't have the temple, and so the first king of the northern kingdom is afraid that he's going to lose all his people, and they're going to go to the southern kingdom because they got the temple. And so what does he do? to keep in competition with the, with the southern kingdom. Does anybody know what he does? He sets up idols. Okay, So you've got these two famous calves, in fact. So now it's like the golden calf. What was, you know, the, what was, what was the name the, of the, the king of, of, uh, of Israel, not Judah? The first king of Israel's name was like, uh, it starts with an S, I think. I can't remember. I can't recall. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 in there, like Shemaiah or something like that. I, I can't remember the first name. But that's the that's the split. That's the split. It's right after Solomon. And it's because specifically because of Solomon. Right. Now, now here's another thing too. This is a little deeper. Is that you know sin causes sin causes sin causes sin, and there's kind of curses that are released on people. Now, some interpreters of the Bible might trace the the sin the primal sin even earlier than Solomon. And they might trace it back to David. What was, da- what was the sin that David committed? Adultery. Adultery, right. With Bathsheba. Okay, so you got the sin of Bathsheba. And then it leads to murder. So he, he not only he commits adultery on one of his most loyal warriors, uh, but then he, he, you know, he steals the wife and then he gets him killed. So he basically commits adultery and then murders this guy. And then Nathan, who we're reading about right now, Nathan's the right-hand man of David, his mean prophet. Nathan comes in and he gives the parable. Does anybody remember the parable? He says, well, there was a man who had uh, a little lamb. And this little lamb was dear to him and his family and they fed it at the table and they, they pet it all the time and they loved this little lamb. And he was a poor man and that was all that he had was this little lamb and his kids loved it and they played with it all. Okay. And then there was a neighbor that he had. This neighbor was very rich, and he had tons and tons of flocks and sheep. And the visitor visited him, and the rich man goes over to the poor man and says, you know what, even though I've got all the sheep, I want your little lamb. And so he takes it from him, and he kills it, and he feeds it to his fellow traveler. And David says, who is that man? What, you know, he's going to have to pay with his life. For his, you know, he's, he's really mad. And then Nathan says, you are the man. Okay, because it's a parable about exactly what David did to Uriah. Okay, Uriah had this one precious wife that he loved. David had it, could have anything that he wanted. Okay, but yet he goes and he gets this one, this, this one guy's wife. Okay, and he does, you know, so, so this is really powerful, dramatic kind of, um, uh, How did it end? conviction that takes place. What? How did it end? So David is convicted. Uh, of sin, and he says, "I have sinned," and he repents. And in fact, David becomes a type of repentance. Okay, David becomes the paradigm of repentance. So, in a certain sense, again, it's kind of like a 
um, a happy fault that David does the sin because he he then becomes for the rest of all generations like the perfect example of repentance. And all the Psalms in the Old Testament that talk about repentance are David repenting, and especially Psalm 50 or 51, whatever enumeration you want to say. So Psalm 50 is the famous penitential psalm. It's said in the in the priest's office every Friday, which is a penitential day. It's wash me with hyssop, you know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, so forth and so on. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. That's the famous penitential psalm. And that's after David, you know, is convicted of this um, sin, this great sin. And so when we... Uh, have our penitential act right in the beginning of Mass, we're actually imitating David. So when we say, um, you know, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned, that I have greatly sinned, that phrase and some other aspects, you know, if you analyze it, it comes from biblical passages that have to do with David's repentance. So here we are forever in the liturgy, David's repentance is enshrined. Um, Anyways, I kind of got off on tangent after tangent there. I don't know where I was going originally. It's easy. It's easy to. But there's a lot in this passage, this prophecy here, okay? So you have David, uh, you know, he wants to. Let's see here, where is it going? I was going somewhere with Solomon, the tents. Oh, and so after that, oh, this is, let me connect it a little bit further with Solomon. So some people say this is what happened, though. You see. Nathan says, okay, David, God forgives you your sin, but there's still going to be consequences. And this is what I've been, I've been preaching on this a little bit. I talked to a men's uh, group this past Saturday morning, and then I preached about it. I preached on it last, I think it was uh, Thursday at the Daily Mass. And then I think I spoke about it somewhere else. And I try to focus on this a lot because it's hard for people to get this, is that your sins can be forgiven, but there's still consequences. You still got to pay the piper sometimes, okay? Even even though your sin's really forgiven, God has forgiven you. You're not going to hell, you know. Uh, you're in God's friendship, but there's still consequences, and that becomes really clear with David because, in fact, God says explicitly because David has authentic repentance, and God says explicitly to him, "Your sin is taken away. Nonetheless, this is the punishments that are going to happen to you." And he says, "The child that's born, that's been conceived between you and Bathsheba, is going to die." And he says even more, he says, the sword will never leave your house. And so then the the immediate scene after that is this whole intrigue within David's house where one of David's sons, because David's got multiple wives, okay, so one son from one of his wives goes to his sister from another wife and rapes her, okay, and then that gets the sister's full brother, full blood, you know, maternal brother, mad at the guy that did the rape, the half-brother that did the rape. And then he goes and he gets vengeance and he slaughters a ton of David's uh, sons from one of a few of his wives, one of his wives. And then it's retribution back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually all of this adds up to Absalom's rebellion against David. And eventually Absalom takes over the throne and kicks David out and wages war against his father. Okay, so so all of that's a consequence of the sin of Bathsheba. All of that. It's it's a really remarkable how that happened. And so some people trace that sin that happens with Solomon and then the division of Israel into the northern and the southern kingdom all the way back to David, not just to Solomon but to David as well. But even given all of that sin, God still promised that I am not your a son 
your son will always sit upon the throne. So there's the, that di- the Davidic dynasty was never going to be revoked, even though there's that sin. And so, you know, you have this seed of David, and it looks kind of like Solomon because it talks about his... Um, it talks Jesus. about his if, he's, if he commits iniquity, he's going to be chastised, but I'm not going to take away my fidelity from him. The promises that I've made will continue to you know, be fulfilled in him. But I really think it's more than Solomon. There is a messianic hint in there. Okay, and I can show you, there's a few other things I want to draw your attention to. So, David is going to want to build the house, but the, see, what he says is this, it's going to be your son that builds the house. Okay? Really, it is the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to uh, build the temple. And what is that temple again? We, we've, we've gone over this a lot. Ultimately, what's the temple? What's church? The, it's the church, the body of Christ. And, then, and I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, this upcoming Sunday, yeah, this upcoming Sunday, we're going to hear from the Gospels, John chapter 2. And Jesus says in John chapter 2, destroy this temple. And I will build, and I will raise it up in three days. And they say to him, "It took us forty-two years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. Who do you think you are? What was he talking about? His actual body. He's going to rise from the dead. And so it's his body that's the temple. And uh, we've got the image in Ezekiel of this future temple with the river of life coming out of it. And then Jesus is pierced in the side on the cross in the river." The water and the blood come out. That's basically like the gift of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments, the Eucharist and baptism. And so we are the body of Christ. We are that temple. Okay, that's. I really believe that this is what it's prophesying in a very veiled fashion. And we're going to see the version, the same version in Chronicles, and it becomes more clear that it's it's messianic. Here's a final point that I want to draw your attention to that I didn't notice myself, but Bergsma uh, drew my attention to this. I found it absolutely fascinating and really enlightening. Let's see here. It says um, in verse 10. Notice verse 10. Now, David at this point is in the high point of his kingly career. He has united all of Israel, north and south. He hasn't done his great sin yet. So there's perfect unity. Uh, He's righteous. He's totally righteous before God. He's overcome Saul. He's been anointed king. He's unified the, the, the nation of Israel totally. He rules over a huge expanse of land. And there's at this point, at least, there's peace. There's, the enemies are not coming in, so there's peace. David's kind of conquered you know, all his, at least his immediate foes. Nonetheless, God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. So it's a it's a further. There's a further fulfillment. That land that was promised to Abraham cannot be understood as reduced to the actual physical land of Israel. There's another promised land that was yet to be fulfilled, and that will be fulfilled in the seed of David. And that that promised land is it's the church. It is and it's another way of looking at it, it's the world to come. It's the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of the universe, the new heavens and the new earth. That's ultimately the promised land. And it's then, and only then, that the enemies really will be stopped. Because ultimately, who's the enemies? It's not the human beings. Who are the enemies? It's, it's the devil. 
Okay? And it's the enemies within us, and it's our concupiscence. And so finally, in the resurrection, all of those three animals, the uh, enemies, animals, all those three uh, enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they will finally be completely defeated. And of course, as Christians, we know, St. Paul tells us, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the powers in, in the dark places, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in this present world. And that's why we can never look at another human being as an enemy. Okay? They're, they're deceived, maybe. You know, they're deranged. Okay? They're mistaken. But they're not an enemy in an ultimate sense. Every human being we need to look at as a fellow traveler towards heaven, and we need to help that person get to heaven. Uh, and we need to look at them as a brother. Even these terrible people who are doing all these terrorist acts, we have to, uh, we don't have to be stupid and lay down and let them kill us. You know, we can fight a just war. But ultimately, we need to desire the salvation of every human being. We need to look at every human being and say, I want you to be in heaven with me forever. I want to be a friend with you. I want to be friends with you for eternity in God, in Jesus Christ forever. And if we can't say that about another human being, we're, we don't, we're missing the picture here. We're not, we're not getting the message. So that's really, really important. And of course, we got these great heroic. I'm gonna. I preached on this in a daily mass. I'll probably preach on it on a Sunday mass. We got this great example of these Coptic Christians who were who were executed brutally by ISIS in uh, in Libya. And um, there was a brother of the two two of the men that were killed. There's a 20, 23-year-old guy and a 25-year-old guy, and they were fishermen. They're just working, and they were grabbed by ISIS and killed brutally. And the brother. A lot of these guys were from a small little region in Egypt. Okay, so they all knew each other, and they all came from like the same town, basically, the same neighborhood. The brother gets on a radio station. This is all speaking in Arabic. I'm reading in subtitles, okay, in English subtitles. And he's saying to the radio talk show guy, he goes, "Truly, I tell you, we are proud, and we are happy, and we are rejoicing. We are we are not mourning. We are rejoicing." And I thank ISIS because they didn't. And I guess I don't watch this stuff. And I don't. I, I always say never watch this stuff, never watch this garbage. But I read it on the blogosphere and the articles that write about it. I guess when they when these guys killed them, when they killed these Christians, they left the audio tape on and they got them calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So you've got these guys who are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus right before they're killed. They're obvious martyrs. I mean. I mean, you just couldn't portray a, a picture of a martyr more more clearly than how. And so the brother of these two martyrs is saying, "I thank ISIS that they included that the voice of them calling upon the Lord Jesus because it's clear that they're martyrs." And then, even then, he goes, the, and the the talk show host was was a Christian man, and he was very, very tactful, very tasteful in how he approached it. But eventually, he kind of he he kind of comes to this question, and he says. Now, can I ask you, would you be willing to forgive these men? And he says, and the brother of the two of the men who were killed says, I tell you truly, I was speaking to my mother this morning, my mother who's over 60 years old, who's completely uneducated and can't read. I was speaking to her and I said, Mom, what would you do if the man who killed your sons was walking right in front of your house right now? And she says, I would invite him in and I would give him hospitality and I would thank him. Well, he, she says, first I would pray God would open his eyes and cure him of his blindness. And then I would open my door to him and invite him in and give him hospitality. 
And I would thank Him for helping us reach the kingdom of heaven. That's a free ticket. Take it right in. And, and so then at the end, the, the talk show host goes, are you willing to pray for these men? And then this guy, the brother, prays this beautiful prayer. He prays, of course, he says, I pray for their conversion, that the, the darkness would be lifted from their eyes, that, that the false teachings they were taught when they were children, that they would see, be able to see through these false teachings, and that they would be converted, that they would be saved. Just unbelievable. So that, that is an example of someone who's listened to the good book. Okay, that's an example of someone who's really got the message. Human beings are not our enemies. So it's our spiritual enemies, and those are what's being prophesied to have finally overcome at the, at the coming of the Messiah. So let's go and see another version of this prophecy in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So if you just flip a few books ahead, so you got 1 Kings, 2 Kings, then you got 1 Chronicles right after that. So it's 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So Chronicles is a few books after um, 2 Kings or 2 Samuel. Okay. Okay. So who wants to read? Who's a brave soul? Nancy, you want to read? Okay. So 1 Chronicles 17. Yep. Go ahead. The oracle of Nathan. After David had taken up residence in his house, he said to Nathan the prophet, See, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord dwells under tent cloth. Nathan replied to David, Do therefore whatever you desire, for God is with you. But that same night the word of God came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who are to build a house for me to dwell in, for I have never dwelt in a house from the time when I led Israel onward, even to this day, but I have been lodging in tent or pavilion, as long as I have wandered about with all of Israel. Did I ever say a word to any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to guide my people, such as, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore, tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you might become ruler over my people Israel. I was with you wherever you went, and I cut down all your enemies before you. I will make your name great like that of the greatest on the earth. I will assign a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them in it to dwell there henceforth, undisturbed, Nor shall wicked men ever again oppress them as they did at first. And during all the time when I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies, moreover, I declare to you that I, the Lord, will build you a house, so that when your days have been completed, you must join your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who will be one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He it is who shall build me a house, 
and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, and I will not withdraw my favor from him, as I withdrew it from him who preceded you. But I will maintain him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be firmly established forever. Okay, that's good. So now notice, this is kind of like if we, you know, we have the Gospels, we have the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and one Gospel will say something, and then another Gospel kind of gives a little bit different wording, and it brings out a different sort of aspect or element. Notice, there's no mention of sin. Okay, that the son of David here, it's specifically, again, these translations, I really wish they would just be literal because it's seed. All right, it says, your seed after you. And it says, uh, I will raise up your seed after you, one of your sons. Very clear, it's an individual, and it's going to be a descendant of David, one of David's sons. It's going to be, that seed is one of David's sons. Okay? And he shall build a house for me. And it says, no mention of sin. I will be a father. He shall be my son. Okay? Now, we were talking about, uh, the one way to understand this, it just kind of occurred to me as we're reading this, is that what's this whole thing about the, this future Messiah figure who's going to build the house? The house is a permanent structure. A tent is a transient, impermanent structure. And the tent is symbolic of basically this world's because this world is going to come to an end. It's only for a time. It's transient. The world to come is permanent. And so it's the house that is, this permanent structure is really signifying the world to come. Um, so let's go on in verse 16. I'm going to read this. And it just shows you how much more it's clearly a messianic prophecy. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Can you imagine this, right? I mean... You've been told that basically the entire universe, the purpose of all creation is going to be summed up in you. And you're just a nobody. You're a shepherd that used to have a sling. I mean, and the purpose of all the universe is going to be summed up in, one, in your person, but specifically in as much as you're going to be the father of this Messiah figure who's going to come. So think about that. I mean, that's got to be humbling, right? So King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in thy eyes, O God. Thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come and hast shown me future generations, O Lord God. Very clear that it's not Solomon. This prophecy is not fulfilled in Solomon. David understands it to be future generations. Okay? And yet the seed is an individual. There's a very strong messianic prophecy. Uh, and what more can David say to thee for honoring thy servant? For thou knowest thy servant. For thy servant's sake, O Lord, and according to thy own heart, thou hast wrought all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like thee, O Lord, and there is no God besides thee according to all that thou that we have heard with our ears. What other nation on earth is like thy people Israel, whom God went to redeem to be his people? So forth and so on. He goes on and on. He kind of sums up salvation history again. But my point being is that David understands this prophecy is not going to be fulfilled in an immediate you know, offspring of his. It's going to be future generations, and it's a seed, and it's a one individual son. So, 
and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. So it's the Son of God. It's a prophecy of, of the Messiah, the Son of God. Very, very powerful prophecy. So David is a very important figure for, for uh, many reasons here. And if we, we, go, we go on on my little handout. It says the Davidic covenant. Uh, we saw these two passages from Samuel, from Chronicles. To summarize the Davidic covenant, God promises David a son who will build God's temple, be the son of God, and rule over Israel forever. And that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. Now remember how we were going through all these different mediator figures and showing how they, they in their persons, they reflect king, priest, prophet, bridegroom, um, and uh, what son, right? And father as well. Like six different things. So here you got David, who is the father of the Messiah. Okay. And then you got David, who is the son of God as well. And this is Psalm eighty-nine. So the king was understood to be the son of God or a son of God. You've got the second Psalm, which is about this messianic Davidic figure, and it says, "Thou art my son today; I've begotten you." Then you've got Psalm 89, a very important messianic psalm. And the quote from Psalm 89 is, I have found David my servant. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Christ is the firstborn. Uh, Christ is the Son of God. But David foreshadows those qualities. Um, Also, Israel... Remember, in um, we read in Exodus that Israel is God's firstborn son. And so David sums up in his person all of Israel. It's like he represents Israel. And then Adam is the son of God as well, we have seen. And so David is a new Adam. Okay, now there's David as priest as well. I don't think we read this when we were in Genesis, but we've got this very mysterious passage in Genesis. And it has to do with uh, our father Abraham. Abraham goes, remember, he, he, he rescues his cousin Lot who, were, who was uh, captured um, with these five kings, Ketileomer and all these other kings. And Abraham goes out and Abraham's this warrior figure suddenly. Uh, and he fights this great battle and he, he recaptures all the different people that were stolen and he liberates, he liberates Lot and all these other people. <coughs> And as he's coming back from his victory, the king of Salem, who's also a priest, comes out to meet David. And his name is Melchizedek. Melech and Tzedek is two Hebrew words, means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness. So he's a king, but he's a priest as well because he comes out with an offering, with a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of bread and wine. Okay? So he basically brings up a type of the Eucharist. Alright? So you got this king, Melchizedek, who also happens to be a priest, and he's king of Salem. Now what city does that sound like? Salem. Sounds like Salem, yes. So you got what if I what if I put a J E R U Right. Okay, yeah. So you've got in Hebrew shalom. Has anybody ever heard the phrase shalom? Okay. So it means peace. So uh, Jerusalem is the city of peace. Isn't that ironic? 
Yeah. Right? And in fact, the word Islam itself, salam, shalom, it's all related. All right? Islam, it's, I mean, it's, it's Arabic. It's an Arabic word, but Arabic and Hebrew are, are like cousin languages and they have common words. So that's why people talk about how Islam is a, is a religion of peace because it talks about, you know, it, it, it does. The word, actual word shalom or peace is like embedded etymologically in the actual name of the religion. That's why they talk about Islam as a religion of peace. So you have uh, Jerusalem, city of peace, or you have Melchizedek who's a king, he's a priest, and he's the king of the city of peace. Jerusalem. David comes in and he takes over Jerusalem and now he becomes the king of Jerusalem. And so basically David becomes heir to Melchizedek in a certain prophetic sense. Then you have one of the most famous psalms in all of the Psalter. It's Psalm 110. It's quoted more than any other passage in the Old Testament, I believe, by the New Testament. So let's go to Psalm 110. Yeah. Yeah, sure. No, there's no crazy questions, Joyce. <laughs> is Malchizedek the same Malchizedek that brings the gift to Christ when he's born? Um, or is that just the name that they, they use? That are you thinking like Melchor or something like that? Melchior? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's a different name. Okay. Different name. But you know, though, I bet you Melchior, if you look in his name and you kind of you study it, it probably has Melech, which means king. So there probably is, it's a similar name. So this is so, so easy to confuse the two, but certainly diff, two different persons. Yeah. Melchizedek was a, was a historical figure who lived probably 2000 BC. Oh, Okay, because he comes out, you know, and he, and he meets Abraham. Mark? He's not the one in Hebrews. Yeah, so then the author of Hebrews speaks about Melchizedek. So, but it's the author of Hebrews who's interpreted in the Old Testament. Okay, without genealogy. Right, without genealogy, without beginning or end. Okay, like unto the Son of God, he remains forever. Okay. Um, yeah, so if we go to the Psalter, Psalm 110. Who wants to be brave? Read for us. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day you lead your host upon the holy mountains. From the womb of your morning, like dew your youth, will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He shall shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, good. So you have this King David, this David figure, because it says the Psalm of David right at the top. Okay, so it's about David, but he's a, he's a a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's priest-king. And um, this translation is based on the Hebrew text uh, in the Jewish tradition, which is fine. It's, a, it's a inspired and authoritative. But in the Septuagint, remember that Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament, it reads slightly different in verse 3. And in the, in the Septuagint version, it becomes really, really clear that 
there's a, a talking about a generation or a begetting of the Son. And it's become a traditional verse to talk about the eternal generation of the Son within the fa- uh, from the Father within the Blessed Trinity. So just to let you know that side by side, there's, you know, by the by, this verse, this verse 3, is becomes a Trinitarian verse, a very important Trinitarian verse. But notice, though, all of this, uh, the shattering of the heads of all of these enemies, it's the whole earth. So he's going to conquer the whole earth, right? That, that was not literally fulfilled in King David. That was not literally fulfilled in anybody. It's fulfilled in that final, ultimate, supreme Messiah figure. And the enemies he's crushing ultimately, again, are who? You know, it's the devil, really. It's spiritual enemies. Okay, um, And uh, there's going to be rest all, from all around about from his enemies. And... Um, So, here's Jesus who comes with bread and wine, okay, which is a sacrifice of the Eucharist. And he's a king and he's a priest. And remember I was speaking, I think, in some sessions before how you've got this phenomenon of uh, basically um, the secular authority and the religious authority were the same for Adam and all of the godly lineage for Abraham, you know, through Noah, Abraham, Moses. But then at Moses it splits off and you've got the secular rulers and then you've got the religious rulers and there's two different things. But with David, but with ultimately with Jesus they come back together again. So Jesus is the king priest. But with David there's this foreshadowing of that because he is a, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In a certain sense, Jesus is the real priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but David is a is a foreshadowing of that. Mark, and that when he's in Hebrews, he says Jesus is he actually meaning David, or does he mean Jesus? Uh, in the in the epistle to the Hebrews, the author is speaking about Jesus, okay. and he's saying that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of that, but it's like David is like a step in the right direction. But, but again, you know, David, David is a is a is a foreshadowing of Jesus. You know, because it says in Psalm one ten, a Psalm of David, "Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." You know, so there could be an element in which David himself is a is a Melchizedek like figure. He's the he's the next king of Jerusalem, um, so he's kind of heir to Melchizedek's king kingdom. Um, but the ultimate, so it's sort of like the, what Melchizedek foreshadowed, David is a fulfillment of, but Jesus is the supreme fulfillment of. That's kind of how you would look at it. Okay. And Hebrews is specifically focusing on Jesus as a fulfillment of Melchizedek, not David. Okay. okay. But, it won't, but it won't. So your original that. intuition was right. I mean, your original sense of what Hebrews yeah, was saying is correct. Tie-in. I'm trying to think. You said you got the Old Testament, you got the Yeah. Yeah, the ultimate tie in is Jesus. <laughs> but, but it won't, won't happen again. Because isn't that what the warning of the, of the Antichrist is? Is that he will be someone that will both govern and try to be, say he's in a sense Jesus. So yeah. he's trying to bring it back to be both. And God's forewarning us and saying it's not going to happen. Or am I yeah, no, reaching? No, I know. I think that's probably right. I think there's a lot in that. You know, I think the the Antichrist figure. He sums up in himself all political authority and religious authority, which brings it back. He's he's trying to do that. He's trying to. It's like a false. It's like an imitation uh, reconciliation of these two things. 
and God says it can't. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. Jesus is the real reconciliation. Right. These things are are found and fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, and the Antichrist is like a he's like a mock Jesus or a false Jesus or a substitute Jesus. So yeah, but it says in Thessalonians he will seat himself in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God, exalting himself over everything that's been that's so called object of worship or religion. So he's the supreme religion. He sums up himself. He claims to sum up in himself all, all religion. You know. So he's a political figure as well, too, though, clearly. So he's both. He's try to. He tries to be the the priest and the king of the world. Okay. So David is prophet. Uh, if we go to this really beautiful passage, we don't have to turn there. But in Second Samuel twenty three two, um, there's a kind of a David's almost like looking back on his whole career, and he he prophesies. And so David is known as a prophet. And then, of course, David is the, is the kind of traditional author of the Psalms, and the Psalms are thought to be prophecies of Jesus. So here's David as a prophet. And then David is bridegroom. I thought this was an interesting thing. I, I got this insight from John Bergsma. At one point within the story about David, it says, Israel comes to David to make him king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And they say to him, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And the only other place in the Bible where that phrase is used is with Adam and Eve when Adam's bride is presented to him and he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Okay, And so basically, David is this figure like this bridegroom figure and the nation of Israel, the people of God, are being married to him when they recognize him as their head, as their king. And so there's this kind of marriage that takes place and it's a prophetic foreshadowing of the marriage that, uh, between Christ and the church. So let's read for next time those psalms down there at the bottom. And we've got maybe five more minutes. Of course, you can stay after later if you want. But uh, just, I don't know, thoughts. I kind of want to even leave a little more room for discussion than this. But Thoughts, comments? Gary? What would be your opinion of why the Jews of Jesus' time didn't see all of the predictions yeah. from the Hebrew Scriptures? You know, I think that probably, truth be told, and to be fair to them, you know, you want to be—I don't want to use a double standard with them. If you were just your person of average intelligence and piety, you read the Old Testament a lot from cover to cover. Probably the the passages where the Messiah is this kingly figure who's going to dominate the world, those seem to take more precedence. You know, those might be the more obvious. Messianic prophecies. It portrays it portrays Israel as the chief nation of all the nations, as them taking over their enemies, the Messiah leading them in battle. He's he's a king of the whole world. The Gentiles come and they grovel before him and all that. Kind of, I mean, there's tons and tons of imagery all throughout the prophets of that. So um, they're expecting a kind of a, a military figure, and it's not crazy that they're expecting a military figure because the Probably the majority of the Old Testament prophecies portray the Messiah that way. I'm doing the kind of reverse thing, and I'm kind of showing out. I'm I'm pointing to the messianic prophecies that are show the more suffering side of the Messiah because it's. But it's a minor note, though. It's not the major note. So to be fair to them, you know, on a kind of a surface reading of the Old Testament, that's one issue. Uh, I so I would say it's a combination of that. The popular expectation expected that, and then that's a combination of that, and I would say just the envy of their leaders. Who, uh, you know, they were just—they had problems with their in their there was a, there was a wickedness to them, really, and um, 
they were envious and they their main ag- agenda was was they hated Jesus and they they wanted him dead um he threatened their security and their their position and uh, their self image um so but I, I I bet you could find you could have found a number of Jews at that time minority groups and individuals who would have recognized that probably there's there's gonna you should expect a kind of a suffering element of the Messiah I would guess you know and especially those who were very inspired by the Holy Spirit like Our Lady and um, so but I think the majority of people would have been expecting a very triumphant militaristic Messiah. Um, that uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus. Well, of course. And then you had a number of people who did believe that he was the Messiah. You know, because they they could see the miracles that he worked, and in particular when he was healing when he was healing blind people and raising people from the dead, that was thought to be a, a, a really specific fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Isaiah, I think chapter twenty three. So that miracle itself was really indicative of the Messiah. So people did recognize him, but you know, ultimately, on the whole, not. You eventually, you probably had in Jesus's lifetime. I would imagine you probably had a good, uh, maybe two or three thousand people who really thought he was the Messiah. Okay, after he was crucified, that was probably really those expectations. That number would have cut down. There's a lot of confusion. There was probably another ten thousand. Who really thought he was something that he could be the Messiah, you know? And then after his death and resurrection, you know, eventually you get you get a good sixty, seventy, eighty thousand Jews just in the Judah, in the area of Judah, who believed, who were became Christians and, and believed Jesus the Messiah. That's a pretty good number, but it was still a smaller percentage than those who did, who failed to recognize him. And primarily, what they would have said is, look, when the Messiah comes, he's going to put the Gentiles under his heel. There's going to be peace from coast to coast, and none of that's happened. So I, and that's kind of how they would think, Mark. I, I did some Bible study in Acts, and I mean, he had people when he had Paul going all over the place. Yeah, he had people over here. I mean, you're this, they're traveling way over here, saying, "Meet this guy." I mean, how crazy is that? You know, this guy knew he was the Lord. You know, was there was, there was a, it seemed like there was a lot of, I think, three different people. Anyways, I can remember that. They said, stop here, you know, and meet this guy and that. You know, that yeah. wasn't necessarily the Jews. You know? Well, so I, I was just talking about Jewish believers. Gentile believers, there's tons and tons of Gentile believers who, who came about really quickly within years after the resurrection. So I was just with, with Gary, I was just talking about how come the Jewish, the religious Jews didn't recognize Jesus, but the Gentiles, of course, far outnumbered the Jewish believers by huge. I mean, that's, and then eventually the church becomes almost 100% Gentile. You know, we've always had some Jewish believers, like a little bit. You know, all throughout history, all two thousand years, there's always been a few Jewish believers in, in Jesus, but not a lot. In fact, there's probably more today than there ever has been. Um, you know, Gentile? no, no, Jewish believers in Jesus. Yeah, I think I seen like in two thousand one or two thousand two, some a Jewish guys screaming on TV, "We missed the calling of our Lord." I mean, this guy yeah. was screaming with conviction. You yeah. Know? No, no. There's a, there are a lot of Jewish believers. They're normally, though, they're secular Jews who who study who can kind of study the gospel from an objective point of view, and they they come to believe in it. But if you get a really religious Jew, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. 
It's, they're tough. They're tough enough not to crack. I, I mean, really, I don't know. You're not going to convert these guys, you know? So. Give it up on the tour. So. Any other thoughts, comments? Father? Yeah? This has, well, it does have something to do with it. But, um, at some point during your talks, because I think there is a lot of confusion, especially today with the Muslims yeah. and the Jews, can you somehow explain to us on terms how this all came to be? Uh, we know it's been going on forever, but when did it 